Hello. In this episode of Airs for Architecture, I spoke with Andrew Beharrell, Rory Algaito of the architects Pollard Thomas Edwards, about their book, The Deck Access Housing Design Guide, A Return to Streets in the Sky, published by Routledge this year. So you've got a bunch of technical and regulatory reasons why dual aspect housing is becoming much more predominant and why that nudges you towards deck access because other typologies struggle to comply as easily or at all with this whole batch of regulation. Then you've got alongside that a load of social issues where the advocates of deck access housing will say and will point to successful examples that counteract a lot of the negativity we've been talking about in earlier in this conversation that actually having a flat or a maisonette with a front door onto the deck is the next best thing to having a house with a front door on the street a is for architecture a podcast about architecture buildings urban culture and space Hello and welcome to another episode of Airs for Architecture. I'm here today with Andrew Beharrell. Yes. That's pretty good. And Rolly, uh, Rory Olgito. I'll do it. I'll do it for you. It's, yeah, it's Rory Olgito. 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 Yes, that's right. Okay. Um, thanks ever so much for being with me. Could you um, maybe be so kind as to introduce yourself? Sure. After you, Andrew. Yes. Uh, Hello, everybody. I'm Andrew Baharrell. Um, I'm an architect. And um, apart from uh, fraternization with a few other practices in student days, I've been part of a practice called Pollard Thomas Edwards all my life, uh, 40 years, working years. Um, uh, Pollard Thomas Edwards, or PTEs, it's sometimes abbreviated to, is a practice which grew up really as a reaction to uh, modernist housing, particularly post-war council housing. Um, Grew up with the Housing Association movement in the 1970s. I joined in 1984. And we were at the forefront, uh, but by no means alone in that, uh, in what used to be called community architecture, which in simple terms means asking people what they want rather than giving them what you think they need. Um, So we're a practice that has done and continues to do lots and lots of housing. all of it in the UK, originally very much uh, focused on cities, but now much more broadly, uh, rural villages and suburbs. Um, And we characterize ourselves as really doing everything about residential communities. So although housing is the core of it, we do public space, um, shops, workspace, schools, places where you recreate, everything to do with residential neighborhoods and indeed town centers. And although uh, most of my career has been involved in building stuff, doing projects, um, for the last 15 years or so, I've been doing a lot of writing as well as an attempt to kind of make sense of the world we operate in and to try and influence it for the better. A lot of that writing has been collaborative with other people, as is the case with this book. Uh, And I'm particularly interested in housing types, typologies, as we sometimes rather grandly call them. Uh, I've done recent work, for example, on um, uh, the mansion flat, the semi-detached house. These are all forms which I love and feel very deeply and have built many of. Um, But for this particular book, and this is the first, I'll say, proper book, um, rather than a self-published report, of which we've done many, um, we've chosen to focus on uh, deck access housing. Yeah. 
probably explain it a bit what we mean by that. Over yeah. to Rory, though, to say a bit about yourself. Uh, yeah, well, I'm writer and critic at Paula Thomas Edwards. Um, I previously, before I joined Paula Thomas Edwards, I was um, well, I was I was editor of the Architects Journal, and then I took up the role as director of Open City and uh, Open House London, uh, and and you know that that's uh, a sort of kind of captures a little bit about my kind of interests in architecture. You know, I've I've really enjoyed studying architecture, which I did at Strathclyde University in in the nineties. Um, but also speaking to the profession. And that's what my job was at the Architects Journal. It was about speaking to the profession and representing the profession's interests. Um, but then when I went to Open House, it was very much about communicating architecture to a public audience. Um, and I found that, that, that kind of fascinating, um, those two sort of different um, audiences and how uh, they engage with architecture. And I, I suppose that's always been my, my kind of interest um, the, the way architecture is understood, the impact it has professionally, socially, on a societal level. Um, and when I wanted to move on from um, Open House, Open City, um, I approached Paula Thomas Edwards about being a writer and critic at the organisation, primarily because Paula Thomas Edwards was so engaged with people and architecture. You know, a big part of what um, Paula Thomas Edwards does is, is speak with people at the very beginning of a project in order to kind of formulate the best kind of architecture for the, for the end user. Um, so I was quite excited by that. And um, I'd sort of worked with them before, uh, with Paula Thomas Edwards before when I was at um, Architects Journal. We published a, a, a book together, a monograph on PTE. So the kind of connections were forged quite early on. And, and uh, since I joined three years ago, uh, you know, Andrew and I have been working on, on various writing projects, but deck access housing was the big one, really. And um, I mean, maybe maybe I should just continue here and tell you how it how it sort of emerged. Because I mean, we 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 we're, we're nudging around, mentioning this sort of in this book, but not mentioning the book by name. So you've sure. published the book called the Deck Access Housing Design Guide, a return yep. to streets in the sky, which has been published by. Routledge this year it's coming out right now and that's one of the reasons perhaps why we're meeting um that's right yeah that's right so I mean you know we we uh Andrew maybe should start telling the story about how he identified this kind of topic and why he thought it was relevant and then I can chip in about some of my interests around it yeah. um yes uh so what what I was noticing more and more in our own work and others was um a, a revival, really, in this form. I, I should just, maybe for some listeners, perhaps start by explaining what, what we mean, because it may not be obvious to everybody. Shall I do that, Ambrose? What What is deck access housing? Yeah, I think that's probably quite a good idea. Because... I think we should get that out of the way in case there's any confusion. Well, in you, in fact, we asked come... a chatbot recently and, uh, what it is, and, and they came up with a very learned dissertation on barbecuing outside the deck on your house. So uh, it's not that. Um, sorry, I interrupted you. No, I was just going to say it's quite an interesting one. Rory's sort of uh, introduction and your introduction. There's this idea around communication with the public about the nature of housing. And what I thought was what I think is really interesting about this book is that perhaps more than any other housing typology, deck access housing has done the reputation of architects no good. Is that, I, I, is that a fair, I mean, and so this is a really interesting, actually, it's a really no, you're absolutely right. that and, you and, are and I, flipping it around. I've got a good idea of how I, I can introduce this subject. I mean, 
No, you're, you're right. Deck access housing is, is very controversial. And on a very mm-hmm. simple basis, basically what deck access housing is, you know, the appeal of decks is straightforward. Rather than getting to your flat through a dark enclosed internal corridor, you reach it through a walkway that's partly in the open air. Um, you know, and like anything, it can be well-designed or badly designed, um, you know, and depending on factors such as width, length, and spaciousness, the quality of that deck, um, you, you know, can be can be good or bad. So it's it's a way of entering your house that's distinct from a tower block, which has a lift that takes you to uh, various levels internally. It's different from a mansion block yeah. um, or or a walk-up tenement. It's about accessing your house from the outside. And, you know, this was an extremely common way of housing, mass housing people in the 20th century. But it went through a kind of reputational roller coaster, as Andrew um, describes in his introduction, where it was kind of sidelined through a mixture of politics uh, and, and, and um, uh, challenges between understanding between the public and private sector. And it kind of fell victim um, to, to those forces. Um, you know, as Miles Glendinning and Stefan Muthesius have argued in their book, book Tower Block, now Tower Block, their book is it, it's a study of post-war housing, there has probably never been another feature in UK public housing which has been so widely criticised, yet so widely used as deck access to blocks of flats. I mean, this was the standard way of providing mass housing throughout mm-hmm. the 20th century. Um, is it both um, perhaps rewind going back, going back back a bit further, Rory? Because you know the, the well, you could go back to the Romans, but we we take we, our book. We go back to about eighteen fifty, which is mm-hmm. the um, where you start to see what we once called philanthropic housing organisations like Peabody, Guinness a bit later, William Sutton Trust, and so on, building. Um, brick uh what's something called tenements um for um the industrious working classes as they would have put it or the artisan classes um and they very frequently adopted uh what they generally called balcony access at that time these terms are fairly interchangeable balcony gallery deck um we've even heard lodger and ambulatory from some uh <laughs> architects um um and they did that i think um, largely because uh, being in the open air was perceived to be a good thing. They were very concerned about public health. Uh, it was that time in uh, the growth of Victorian housing where people were starting to understand the uh, uh, how disease spread and importance of clean air and um, the um, avoidance of kind of fetid staircases and so on. Um, I mean, that's very, uh, so, that's very yeah, much the case. Part of their characteristic is that they were, um, by, by comparison with what perhaps we instinctively think of today in terms of uh, post-Second World War reconstruction and vast estates with very long decks, these were relatively more compact buildings. They were almost invariably built of brick uh, and they were broken down into relatively smaller social groupings. And those that have survived that are still in use, and there are many of them because they're very robust, um, they're very popular. And I think they've, as, as a result of, you know, good management, continuous upgrading, they've remained good housing. Rory? So I think I think what Andrew says is absolutely right. I mean, the story of deck access housing is the story of mass housing per se. 
I mean, basically, it goes back to the 1850s and, um, you know, the, the philanthropic housing that was built to, you know, deal with the deserving poor, as they were called. It was, you know, this was a time when cities were industrializing. There was huge migrations to cities and, and you know, urban modern societies were presented with a new problem of like, how do you house so many thousands of people? Um, so the, the kind of story of modern housing is the story of modern deck access as well. Um, but again, as Andrew says, these were these were called balcony access, galley access, all sorts of different kind of ways of describing this. Um, but post-war, we started to see the influence of modernism on the building type. So concepts such as streets in the sky, where a much broader deck was produced. We started to see that post-war. And, you know, this was all influenced by the internal street in uh, Unité d'Habitation in, in, in Marseille, Corbusier's building, that every local council um, um, went to see post-war. Um, there were other adventurous deck housing schemes that were being developed um, in Holland and in France that were proving influential as well. But England, um, and I mean England more than Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, picked up the deck access more than any other country in Europe, apart from Holland. I mean, the, the, uh, we, you know, we should England just qualify, Holland, Rory, right? that the, the unit itself wasn't deck access. No, uh, it was an internal it, corridor. What it but did it, it do was, was develop new maisonette typologies. And sure. The, um, the maisonette, or some architects prefer to, or state agent prefer to call them duplexes now, um, uh, evolved very much in tandem with with the deck, and um, you'll be aware that many um, post-war deck access housing schemes uh, are maisonette schemes, and, and Park Hill is a, is a famous example of that. So instead of having a deck on every level, you get it every two or three levels, um, and you go up to one flat, down to another. Um, I'm digressing slightly, but I'll just finish the point, which is that um, one of the consequences of that, uh, in some ways, very clever uh, sectional planning was that you get rows and rows of front doors on a deck and few, if any, windows to habitable rooms. Um, and that meant that you had a lot of coming and going, but very little overlooking and that was a contributory factor to some of the eventual social problems that emerged in those schemes. Yeah, and the reputational point, bring it back. Yeah, the reputational damage that comes from that feeling of even if there is no um, negative behaviour occurring, a feeling that it might occur is as good in a way, isn't it? If a place feels unsafe, doesn't yeah. really matter if it is unsafe. Yeah. Um, people um, will react in a similar yes. way. I think I'm drawing a contrast between that generation of post-war mm -hmm. reconstruction and the much earlier generation of much more smaller, intimate, much smaller and more intimate blocks. Interestingly, though, uh, one of the things that uh, and I maybe say more about this later on, the contrast between UK and European work, which is a feature of our book, is there is no fear of enormously long decks in Europe, some of the schemes that recent schemes that we've looked at, that is a feature. Mm. Whereas in Britain, um, the deck access housing schemes that we're seeing emerging today, and we feature uh, 17 of them as case studies in our book, they're all very human scaled, um, 
typically have very few flats off a, off a single deck. Um, eight is the kind of um, normal cap in, in London, especially. Um, so they're a very different approach to um, what we think of from um, those post-war estates. Um, I want to just add in one other thing about the re- reputation, mm-hmm. and that is um, that I think the the, the media, uh, particularly creative media, uh, continues to feed off this um, now rather old-fashioned idea of the failed council estate. Um, uh, we've all seen, um, uh, and they're still happening, crime dramas, haven't we, where armed police rush along a deck and smash in the the front oh, door yeah. of I mean, the I, drug dealer's den. And it, it suddenly occurred to me, because there's a very simple reason why every crime thriller, line of duty to, to the gold, features yeah. this. Um, which is that you can get decent long-distance camera shots of decks, and you can't do that with corridors and lift lobbies, or it would be very boring. So, <laughs> unfortunately, the typology is rather kind of... Um, filmic. Filmic, uh, yes. If I could, if I could just... that hasn't um, helped its reputation. If I could add to that, because I, I think Andrew makes a very good point, as usual, um, but I actually think that point is even um, sort of deeper and darker than that, actually. Um, that sort of ingrained negativity of, of deck access... Um, you know, as Andrew says, anyone familiar with crime dramas from, you know, from Luther to Line of Duty will, will know that deck access has become like a shorthand for urban dystopia. You know, it's become a gothic element in the same way that the sort of basement or, or the cellar has. Um, I mean, Channel 4 even filmed a, a brutalist version of its logo fo- floating in a rundown patch of um, the Aylesbury estate with, with seemingly no regard for residents still living in the modernist mm-hmm. neighbourhood that was famous for its streets in the sky. Um, you know, even, even Doctor Who uh, is, is kind of equally sombre around deck access. You know, Rose Tyler, who, who, who is uh, Doctor Who's companion, was sort of confined to the open-air walkways on, on the Powell estate, the fictional Powell estate, until the Doctor whisks her away in, in the TARDIS. So, you know, this is ingrained in the British psyche, but it's more serious than that because... Actually, you know, insurers and mortgage lenders regard access decks with suspicion. Planning guides generally, until fairly recently, have been advising against them. Um, There is a a, a problem in the British psyche about deck access and it it, it impacts on the real world, where where literally mortgage lenders are saying, well, well, no, actually. But what's fascinating now is that this new era of deck access homes which is being designed by, you know, some of the best civic architects in Britain today. You know, we've got Sterling Prize winners, nominees galore, basically in, in, in the kind of short list of architects doing deck access housing now. Um, that's going to kind of move the dial on that. Um, you know, the reason that deck access is returning is because the mayor of London and his housing design guidance insists on dual aspect homes. And one of the easiest ways to develop dual aspect homes, insists on them for affordable housing. One of the easiest ways to do that is through deck access. So that's hardened now into, in, into, into policy. I'd like to come back, I'd like to think about that for a bit. So this, this issue of dual access, which you've pointed out, and also the, uh, and the system of the duplex enables 
uh, is enabled by deck access because you can get a deeper plan and you can get deeper solar penetration into the section so you can kind of condense housing it's just, it's a it's a, um, it's a it's a model of urban housing that is we're specifically talking about here you wouldn't imagine putting something like this into a suburban or rural context but um, I, but I but i wanted to I, so that's the first part but i was also interested in this issue around this thing that you pointed out andrew that in on the continent you'll get enormously long decks and here we found what did you say eight units yeah. around a deck eight 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 uh, thresholds onto a deck i think that's something really interesting the idea that the that the english uh the english context the british context sort of we, we're not we don't have an appetite we don't have the same cultural values perhaps perhaps there's something more indigenous about the way that we kind of think about housing that isn't that you can't you can't make policy for because you've talked about it and i'm jumping around a bit you've you've talked about this as a sort of near vernacular is that new london vernacular so maybe the vernacular is that we need to reimagine and reformulate the notion of deck access according to customs on this part of the planet. So, uh, Ambrose, I mean, it is you're, you're right. There, there, there is a problem here, um, but it's it's a social and political problem that has generated this antipathy. Okay. You know, as as we see in Europe, there's nothing innately anti-human about long decks. You know, it's it's it goes back really to the middle of the 1980s. You know, and five years into the Conservative government uh, and their controversial right to buy policy. Um, an academic, um, Alice Coleman, published uh, Utopia on Trial. Um, and this was um, building on work done by somebody called Oscar Newman, who was uh, a Canadian-American architect, mm -hmm. uh, who had promoted this idea of defensible space. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he, he actually visited Britain, went to Aylesbury Estate, did a program. It was on Horizon, which was a science program in the, in the, in the 70s. So it was presented as a scientific analysis when it had no right to be presented as a, a scientific analysis, his observations about human behavior on uh, decks. Um, and as a result, that influenced Alice Coleman, who wrote this book, Utopia on Trial, which was then picked up by uh, the conservative government at the time. And, and she basically linked um, housing schemes um, and cited elements of housing schemes like deck access as being a root cause of social unrest in Britain's towns and cities. But at the time, you know, there was a huge amount of social change in, in finance and economics and the kind mm -hmm. of jobs. But for some reason, uh, you know, it was easy just to sort of blame this all on, uh, you know, a kind of, of uh, architectural element. You know, this ultimately, in my view, was part of a land grab when, when um, public land was, was reprivatized, basically, after, after, you know, 30 years after, after the war. Um, so, so we kind of got caught up in that kind of major shift from from the the, the public sector to the private sector that happened in the eighties, um, and I, I think Andrew himself has, you know, witnessed some of that. Um, you know, I think you 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 saw a major scheme in in the East End, the deck access scheme that was being replaced yeah. by. Um, I, I, I want to. I'm going to drag us back to Ambrose's question a moment, but it is an interesting line of aggression um yes i mean a lot of my early career was um and indeed 
our peer practices was in taking really quite recently completed mm. estates that might have only been finished in the early 70s that were already by the late 80s, early 90s, showing serious signs of failure. Um, sometimes that was technical, physical failure in terms of you know water ingress, noise, mould, um, even structural problems. Um, but often it was social pressures um, where the, the combination of design and management and the nature of tenancies, which had shifted from um, uh, people in low-paid work towards people who were um, often out of work and uh, estates were available homes were increasingly, and for very good reasons, focused on the mo those in most need. Um, so you estates were starting to shift their composition into centres of, of uh, deprivation where you put a lot of people who have problems together and you don't in increase the level of management and support accordingly, you get difficulties. So those difficulties aren't caused by architecture, but architecture can exacerbate them and that's what was happening in in these cases so we were um uh reviewing and in most cases demolishing now it's very controversial today for other reasons to do with climate change and embodied carbon and retrofit but but more often than not having done an options appraisal on keep them as they are adapt remodel or 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 demolish the solution at that period was demolition. Mm -hmm. So we were demolishing, including one of my first big projects of that nature was Tower Hamlets Housing Action Trust in Bow, the fever walk, quarter mile long brutalist blocks. Today they'd probably be there'd be a campaign to save them. Um, but that in the context of an estate and a program which had a very effective and high degree of tenant power, tenant tenants on the steering groups it was a fantastic program but a very expensive government program which won't be repeated um the the, the tenants were determined to uh start again that was that was their their mm. choice um that's very interesting isn't it that you get this i i mean behind me up here i have a model of a section of Robin Hood Gardens, Gardens which is made by one of my students this year for his his master's dissertation and before that was demolished, I think it was 75, 85% of the residents wanted it demolished. Which yes, so the, I mean, that was, um, I mean, I, I think we're risk simplifying a very complex uh -huh. uh, controversy around Robin Hood and Gardens, but the gist of it is the tenants wanted it gone. It was architects who wanted to keep it. I should um, say that so I was actually involved wow, in the what campaign. A, what a, a gulf of, of understanding. But I want to try and, if I may, Ambrose, I think we've dwelt a lot on the problems. Um, yes, for I'd sure. like to drag us around to the benefits and why we perceive it to be more popular today yeah. and who wants to live there. Um, I think you, you started talking about depth of plan and dual aspect. I think we should just say a few practical things around that um, mm -hmm. for listeners. So um, th there are many perceived and real advantages around what is called dual aspect housing and in its most effective form that means homes that have windows at the front and windows at the back 
Um, uh, so uh, you get light and view from two directions, and also, and increasingly important today, you get cross-ventilation. So um, it began as a um, planning policy in London. It spread to other places. In London, it began as guidance and has gradually been, in each successive London plan, made tighter and tighter. Mm-hmm. So it's almost mandatory now. You have to justify doing anything that isn't that. Um, and then it's we've now got technical climate change related uh, rules through the building regulations that endorse this approach, particularly part O, which is about overheating that came through. I apologise to international listeners. This is a very UK thing, although it has implications elsewhere. Um, And that produces another set of tests which kind of drive you towards through ventilation. It's not the only way, but it's the best and most simplest and most cost-effective way. Um, So you've got a a, a bunch of technical and regulatory reasons why dual aspect housing is becoming um, much more uh, predominant and why that nudges you towards deck access because other typologies struggle to comply as easily or at all with, with this whole batch of regulation. Um, then you've got, alongside that, a load of social issues where the advocates of deck access housing will say, uh, and will point to successful examples that counteract a lot of the negativity we've been talking about in earlier in this conversation, that actually having a flat or a maisonette with a front door onto the deck is the next best thing to having a house with the front door on the street. And survey after survey, and we've just done another one ourselves recently, uh, and um, show, and we're perhaps a very conservative nation, that British people want to live in houses. And um, that a flat is often seen as a stepping stone towards a proper home, a house. Now, we're not all going to be able to have a house. Um, so deck access is seen as being the next best thing because done well, the street of the sky, and you might like that expression or, or just associate it with post-war failure, but it is, a, it is a kind of street. It's not a proper street, of course. It's not a public place, but at least it's open air. You can have a threshold. You have a different kind of relationship to your neighbours mm-hmm. compared to what you might have meeting in the lift. Um, and done well, you can have something like a vestigial front garden. There are all kinds of technical issues around that, which we probably won't have time for today, which our book goes into and explains how to mm-hmm. to do this. Um, uh, and you can have you know sufficient privacy because one of the objections to deck access is where you have w- windows to habitable rooms on a deck mm-hmm. and people passing in front relatively more closely than they might on a on a street. Yeah. Um, so this is this has been turned around. We speak to lots of people. We have quite a lot of colleagues actually who've chosen because they have choice. They're not um, social housing tenants who've been waiting five years to, for the first thing that's offered. Chosen to live in deck access schemes. And what we haven't really talked much about today is that these schemes are mostly uh, mixed tenure. They're not. They're no longer confined to social housing. Yeah. And I think the other reason that we're seeing a a revival of this is generational. So the people who have this 
baggage are my generation who remember how it was and some of the problems uh, and perhaps spent part of their lives solving those problems. Younger people, they don't know or care about all that. Uh, they might associate what we call deck access more with um, trendy warehouse conversions. Mm-hmm. Um, so you go, go to, go to Hackney Wick, the place is awash with deck access schemes, which where people have bought homes for sale. We did one called Stone Studios next to the new Hackney Wick station. Uh, and the agent Savile said it was their best selling scheme in the, in the whole of London. And that's mm-hmm. tech access. Yeah. So people, I, mean, I, th- I think they it's like important. it, they want it, they're choosing to go there. But developers it, are still very cautious. Many are very conservative in their approach to it. I mean, it's important to realize, I think, that, that deck access as, as a typology actually has a rich design history. You know, th- this is what's kind of interesting about. Um, it's it's perception or misperception, you know, because if you go back to the kind of the, the kind of first deck access scheme, uh, which is sort of considered to be Henry Roberts' um, Bloomsbury housing block, um, can't remember the name of it, but um, it's actually, uh, you know, it was a radical statement of intent at the time, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in the 1850s when it was built. Um, you know, it's slum landlords were presiding over sort of wretched shacks, you know, made with sort of brick and tireless, with, you know, just cheap, cheap rubbish. Mm-hmm. Um, and this building, um, you know, it was a five-story block in, in yellow stock brick, you know, it had stucco dressings and recessed sash windows. Its, its flats were spacious. It opened onto a courtyard. Um, you know, this was a, a stunning piece of architecture. And you know the new architecture that we're seeing now is 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 really fascinating too, and 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 it's it's being done by you know some 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 of our our, our better architects. Mm. Um, you know Henry Hale Brown, um, who won actually the Neve Brown Award for housing last year. Uh, they, they they've done a, a lovely scheme it, it, which explores decks through sort of playful bridges and arches and and, and loggias, as he refers to them. You know, Matthew, Matthew Lloyd Architects have has, has kind of blended um, new build deck access with a historic Bourne Estate, which is a very early deck access scheme from the from the 1900s. Howard Tompkins, the the brick facades that they've done for Silchester Estate, builds on the tradition of of early philanthropic dwellings. So that rich seam of sort of design culture is still present um, in 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 the typology. Um, yeah. And earlier I mentioned, and I think you, you sort of um, picked up on it, this idea about the new London vernacular. Now, the new London vernacular is 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 a, is a kind of style of architecture that we see everywhere, and it's not particular to deck access, but we decided to write about it because this is the kind of aesthetic that dominates just now in London, and, and, new, and, and deck access is kind of fitting in with that to a certain extent. You know, I find new London vernacular kind of interesting in itself, um, and we've sort of described it as, uh, you know, a kind of uh, de-risked um, developer strategy formed in the wake of, of the 2008 crash, you know, because it's yeah. easier to cost, design, build and sell uh, because the brick slips are, are, are very uh, easily to understand on a modular level. Everything is orthogonal. Um, so so it's, it's become like this kind of uh, ubiquitous way of dressing uh, mass housing and, and and some is more successful than others for example but it, it's interesting to see how uh, t- the typology is, is is working with that 
Um, and, and just to, to, to round off, you know, some of our favorite schemes, some of everybody's, uh, I presume everybody loves these schemes from the 60s, uh, things like we've already mentioned Park Hill, um, but Dawson's Heights, for example, uh, Kate McIntosh's sort of hilltop battle cruiser in, in, in Dulwich, in East Dulwich, that is deck access. Mm. You know, Wyndham Court by, by Lion Israel Ellis in Southampton, which I think is Owen Hathaway's, one of Owen Hathaway's favourite buildings. Um, that's deck access. Darbon mm. and Dark's Lillington Gardens in Westminster, which is one of the most sort of luxurious sort of council developments anywhere in the world, as far as I'm concerned. That is deck access too. Mm. Um, so there's always been this very strong design culture around this, yeah. this typology. I think we're right. Um, sorry, Amber, as you say. No, I was just going to say, I think this is really a, a, um, a, a fascinating discussion, actually, because they're, they're, it comes back to this idea of something that you mentioned about Pollard Thomas Edwards and your practice and this new London vernacular, perhaps, as well as a, as a kind of body of practices that contribute to that, which is there seems to me to be some form of mediation between very top-down post-war ideas of what deck access is, which failed. I think we can say that fairly categorically. In the public imagination, at least, it failed. But what's happening now where there's this amplification of the ordinary values and voices of people through the way that you practice your architecture, which has mediated. So there's a, there's a, there's a new type of deck access, which is sensitive rather than rather than the application of Le Corbusier to I don't know yeah. Southampton or Hampshire or or whatever it is which, which is a, which is a really weird idea to begin with isn't it yeah I think that's I think that's very well put if you look at the um all of the examples bar one and then the, the exception is interesting I'll come back to it in the of the UK case studies in our book they are they're very accessible I'll call it quite gentle architecture. They're very crafted. They're very human centric. Um, the one which, and, and they're nearly all in brick. Um, and the, uh, just a slight digression, the, 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 the reason for the universal adoption of brick, which was a, a trademark of what we've been talk, referring to as the new London vernacular, was a reaction against a decade or so in the early noughties of look at me architecture, which was experimenting with different cladding materials and look where that got us, cladding. Um, yeah, for sure. Was deliberately trying to distinguish itself from its, its neighbors. And um, we all did it. I, I put my hand up, we did some white render and timber cladding and all of that. It's aged pretty badly. And it's given way to a feeling that actually Housing is about background architecture and fitting in. And again, survey after survey, people like brick. So that's been that's one key aspect of, of it. Um, I'm sorry, I've completely digressed now. <laughs> what, what, no, uh, I would, so what I was interested in, no, I was interested in this idea of also what this means in terms of design. So if you're being responsive to communities, to individuals and communities, how what how has this affected things like uh, significant things like how how you how the building meets the street or how the building meets the ground? Is there this requirement for for front gardens, that very British kind of um, thing of of having a little bit of front garden, and the more front garden, 
the wealthier the area. And, and also, is there now restrictions on height? I did research around new tenement architecture in, in Scotland and, and in Northern Europe. And there's this kind of five, six stories maximum, four, five, six stories, which which is seen as being much better than the, the kind of tower block um, thing as well. And I was just wondering, you know, how 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 have yeah. these designs been in this in this British version of the the deck axis? How are they? What like what are the main features around that? Yeah. So if, if you can, you know, gather yeah, it into two or three the, things, I'm sure it's diverse. The kind of urban design planning level um, uh, parallel to the architecture of the New London vernacular is the is the is the street and the perimeter block and mid-rise um mid-rise uh, apartment blocks or mid-rise buildings of whatever they they use so mid-rise is what mid, okay so let's let's that's important to define uh there is no um fixed definition uh but the there are many arguments for saying that seven stories is kind of five to seven stories, nine stories maximum. Mm -hmm. um, you're Because of fire regulations, and I won't go on about it, um, you'll be hearing a lot of references to 18 metres and 30 metres. 30 metres is 10 stories. Um, so nine stories and below, uh, I would define as mid-rise. And, and generally the ones that we've published have been, you yeah. know, less yeah. than yeah. that. They've been four, five, six yeah. stories. Uh, Recently, there's been one completed yeah. in, so, in, in um, nine stories. Deck mm. access by no means has a monopoly on mid-rise housing. You'll probably see more of it done in what people sometimes call contemporary mansion blocks. But for all the reasons I mentioned earlier, um, regulatory nudge as well as... Um, I think the different set of expectations from a younger generation, we're going to see much more deck access and it lends itself, it dovetails very well with that kind of mid-rise street-based um, perimeter planning architecture where you have a back and a front, front door, front garden, all of that. In contrast to, and it, and it achieves um, pretty high densities. And I've done previous work around density and we know that, um, uh, and again, apologies to international listeners who may have different ways of expressing this, but in a, a common measure in um, Britain is is um, homes per hectare. Uh, you can get around 250 to 300 homes per hectare in these kinds of perimeter block mid-rise planning. Once you go more than that, you're into tall buildings. And that's where we are in London and Manchester and other cities at the moment, really pushing it. That's probably for a different podcast, another story. Actually, I, I just looked, I visited a scheme recently um, by uh, Studio Woodruff Papa. Um, they're a sort of Anglo-Dutch firm and they completed a deck access scheme in Bermondsey. It's nine stories high and its density is about 300 dwellings per hectare, which is pretty high. To be honest, but it's not it's not you know challenging high rise towers, but it, it, it's pretty efficient. Um, so it's it's a good urban solution in that respect. Yeah. Um, you know, Andrew was talking about uh, you know we've all done it and done the kind of white render timber sort of projects in the early noughties, etc. I would argue that again those pieces of design were influenced by policy. You know, th th those pieces of architecture were very much influenced by Cabe. And the kind of mixed palette of materials, you know, 
and and the kind of icon led regeneration as mm. well that went in tandem with that where you know you get in a superstar architect or a big name architect to do some kind of landmark building but that's where all the budget goes and then there's some drossy housing that comes along with it and it's you know clad in sort of multicolored panels or whatever it's absolute rubbish it's the stuff that sort of defined the noughties um but i would i would argue actually that the the, the kind of brick buildings that we've seen emerge hasn't been like this kind of particularly clever response from the architectural community um, or, or even the developer community. Um, I think it's policy. Again, if, if you look at the London 2009 housing guide, it actually calls for a new London vernacular. It actually uses those words um, in the 2009 London housing design guide, the draft guide. That was the one that called for dual aspect homes and mentioned deck access, but it also said develop a new appropriate vernacular, a new London vernacular to suit this. And the response has been this kind of shift towards brick. And there's all sorts of reasons. It's not just because of this one document, but I think it's important to stress that, and this is what I find so fascinating, is that the world around us is actually you know, generated by mundane policy decisions. Mm. Uh, I kind of find that fascinating. No, it's it's uh, it's the it's the great mystery behind architecture. I'm, I I was th- when you were talking earlier, um, Andrew, about this. Um, well, you were talking about the mixed use, and I think that's an absolutely critical part, isn't it? Because what happened previously was. Um, what was called in Glasgow municipalization, where you get whole areas of the city where everybody is in one type of 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 um subsidized housing and so you have a crash in kind of tax revenues in that area and when people stop paying taxes by and large councils stop paying attention so you get this kind of race to the bottom whereas if you can create housing type uh, a, a housing typology that satisfies the appetites of both i guess um, taste-driven markets and also um, satisfies the needs of of, of, of residents. That's that's go- uh, of of lower income and more more vulnerable residents. Then then and and you think the deck access does this better as an urban and a dense urban compact building form than uh, and and if so, why is that? Like why um, why does why does the why does the deck access do this better than say the tower block or or, or okay. even a semi-detached house. Um, I mean, that's a big question. So you don't it, have to have an. It, well, what, what, I, what I would I answer, answer that would be would be the comparison with um, more conventional corridor access or yeah. compact core access. Compact cores where you have a small number of flats around a a front a front entrance to the street and a stair and probably these days a lift. Is what we sometimes call a modern mansion block, harking back to the kind of Edwardian mansion blocks, which of course extremely popular um, and continue to be a popular and valuable in the financial sense form of housing, um, and was um, pretty much developed as housing for the middle classes mm-hmm. uh, in in Britain from the eighteen seventies eighties onwards bit later than the philanthropic dwellings we've been talking about. Anyway, um, so throughout my career, the mansion block actually has been the default solution to mid-rise street-based housing, um, often with 
other uses slipped in on the ground floor, more active commercial or leisure uses, recreational uses, uh, and, and indeed schools. In fact, we pioneered and we built a number of uh, blocks like that where you have a school on the ground floor. Um, all good. The reason why um, that the mansion block form is increasingly difficult to make work um, is regulatory. So it's a combination of universal access by lift, which is expensive, and therefore you need to get more homes off every lift core, every landing. Um, now, the two-stair thing, which you probably read about, is very controversial, post-Grenfell, likely, very likely now to be regulated for. I mean, two staircases, not one. Um, and what I referred to earlier, which was a lot of the regulation around climate climate change, especially cross-ventilation. These things, I think, are threatening the, the mansion flat, which is personally one of my favourites, with extinction. It's really hard to do it now. Deck access does all that. Uh, much more easily and cost-effectively. So for these rather um, dry um, regulation-driven reasons, quite apart from the more exciting kind of social aspects, um, that's a big reason why why we are seeing more of this typology, and I think we're going to see a lot more still. Mm. I mean, the, the, the sort of story of um, British housing over the last 120 years actually has been a kind of three-way battle, you know, between mid-rise housing, often deck access, high-rise, and, you know, the villa or the cottage. Um, and this is sort of captured beautifully in um, an advert for um, a deck access housing system um, that we used to kind of explore the history of deck access. When I, when I set out to write the history chapter, I was looking for a way in, um, to, to the story. And I found um, an advert by Unit Construction Limited for its system. It's called Unit System Midrise. Um, and it basically um, presents um, deck access midrise as the best housing offer uh, mm -hmm. by literally comparing it to other types of housing. It says, what does midrise offer? Midrise is the name of their prefab system for making deck access housing. What does Midrise offer? The high densities of multi-story flats, a closer community environment than in high flats where each tower is an island, friendlier than traditional two-story developments where individual houses and gardens promote insularity, highly suitable too for sloping and irregular sites as Park Hill proves. So, you know, this advert was amazing actually because, uh, you know, it was in an edition of a magazine in 1968 um, it was uh, promoting deck access uh, 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 with with this kind of text and, and and a drawing that looks modern. It looks like the unite uh, in the advert. Um, so it, it's kind of fascinating that uh, this building type has sort of set itself against the other types and. You know, if you look actually at the history of, of, of development, it, it's been there from the beginning, right right back at the start in the 1890s, uh, just when the, the LCC, London County Council, was set up and, and started building working class housing like the Boundary Estate. At the same time, it was drawing up plans for, for low-rise suburban expansion plans. Mm -hmm. So these different types of housing, towers, suburban villas, and mid-rise, often deck access, 
have been in contest in, in the British kind of housing sector for, for about 120 years now. And, and now we're just seeing the return once again of deck access after sort of 30 years absence. I'm, I'm Rose, I, I wonder whether I'm conscious, I think you, you said a lot of your visitors are international, not mm -hmm. British, and our, our book is mainly focused on the UK, and that's what we've been mainly talking about today. I wonder if it'd be worth um, just saying a little bit about its broader application in other countries and continents would you would you like us to do yeah i think that would be i think that would be very interesting actually because i mean it's not just that it's it's a lot of the people that i teach mm. yeah. are going to be practicing in other countries and yeah. and yeah. and i think one of the one of the things that most intriguing about your book which is very nicely laid out you know it's very clear it's it's the work of an architect um can see that um it, is that how we can take sort of learning from this book and use it to i mean housing is the critical uh, uh issue for architecture of our day again it's become you know I, I if urban regeneration was it in the in the late 90s and early 2000s and and so we got this kind of absurdism of squiggly buildings and, and buildings that look like they've been melted um then now and you know COVID-19 crisis evidenced this with significant issues around isolation um obviously the housing crisis obviously the defacement of the countryside and suburban areas by appalling houses on the episode I did with Flora Samuel she had encountered some new housing which was built with a seven-year lifespan seven years so how do you even get a mortgage on that so the answer is you don't get a mortgage on that you buy it outright and you airbnb it or you rent it so it's it's you know it's not dealing with the housing crisis anyway so this is the critical issue and I, but it's the critical issue across much of the world now so i think it is really good to think about it in the yeah in, in, in so, international sense in well, short i think i think the all of the practical advantages of, of deck access housing, which we talked about, are entirely applicable in uh, places with comparable climates to the UK. Um, our book does have a whole section on continental Europe. Um, we were fascinated to find that brilliant modernism is alive and well. There's a kind of unbroken tradition. Uh, and deck access is, is, is very common. And it's practiced. Some, many of the examples are big and bold. Mm -hmm. And they are taken from Southern Europe as well as Northern Europe. So they, they cover quite a quite a wide climate range. Mm -hmm. Our book does not go beyond Europe. I If we get to do a second edition, I hope that we will. Um, because you think of, in the, on, in the States, you think of motels. I do. Fascinated by motels. Motels are deck access housing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, typically two stories, sometimes three uh, and of course, they've got their own huge mythology in in um, movies. Um, think of the Florida Project, for example. If you know that one, um, which is which is deck access housing, not not a motel. So it, it does exist there in in sunnier parts of the U.S. So I, I'd love to expand into that in another edition. Um, I've been recently to Central Asia, where of course the caravanserai is a part of the ancient heritage and mm. was a a courtyard with uh, typically two and sometimes three stories of open mm -hmm. galleries. Yeah, yeah. I, I worked actually on the restoration uh, around of the caravan, sorry. Um, so it, 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 there is a tradition there. Um, 
I uh, confess to high degree of ignorance around the Far East, and many of your students may come from the Far East and therefore be expert in it. But I, 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 I would suggest that that the topology is, is suitable to hot and humid climates. I mean, the veranda is a feature, isn't it? Mm. So it's probably a colonial word that we're not supposed to use anymore. But um, no, um, but no, the, the, the the covered outdoor space. Is 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 a way of dealing with uh, high levels of of insulation and cross ventilation is also an important response to humid climates. Mm-hmm. The same would apply to parts of Australia, Australasia, I think. So, um, yeah. So we would love to, uh, I think, in the future, research that. I think it does already. You're already into... pointing to that, though, in the way that you've documented. Pl- um plant types because i think when people think of deck access housing they think of things like robin hood gardens or or, or park hill which are great big long kind of sinuous snakes in the landscape which this dual aspect thing is clear in but actually you document l shapes you document essentially courtyards and perimeter blocks as well and and these are also models of deck access housing that can work and i and therefore i think there is global application for this you know it's not it's not a assumption I think I think um, that that was very kind of you to say that the book has been well laid out and um, you know we did we did have a very kind of uh, simple sort of idea behind the book um, you know it includes basically a history of the evolving house type because we couldn't find a history anywhere of deck access housing so we thought we better write one mm. um, it includes recent British and European case studies. Um, there are 17 British case studies and 15 European ones. And it also includes a practical guidance section that's been produced by Paula Thomas Edwards, uh, the knowledge hub that we have here, um, which is very much for the working architect in Britain because um, it makes reference to British uh, building regulations. Um, so, so the idea was to provide a useful book that was also interesting. You know, my background in magazines has really informed the book. We wanted it to be something you could pick up and use. So we, we wanted those plans to be redrawn and presented in a nice clear manner. Um, not every uh, uh, layout is exactly the same. So, you know, in Apparata's scheme, a house for artists, for example, we present the plans, but also a really beautiful kind of skewed axo plan drawing that they've done that shows how the how the how the floor of the entire scheme one floor of the entire scheme might be used mm-hmm. um and as you say you know there are really quite different um types of deck access in the book and that was that was very much what we what we tried to do mm-hmm. the british ones i would say um there's a loose kind of school there you know a lot of the architects involved compete for the same work um, in, in across all sorts of um, sectors, uh, the European ones um, we chose them, and I should mention my colleague Rebecca Lee actually because she did some incredible research work to kind of find some of these projects for the book. Um, the European ones were selected very much to explore variety and sh- to show range and to to really just um, make people understand how expressive this. Um, typology can be mm. you know um the, the the current crop of british uh schemes as we've already discussed are, are, are reasonably conservative uh, there are playful elements within them and you know quite a bit of expression within that conservative approach but ultimately 
uh, you know, they, they do uh, seem pretty tame to the European examples. I want to finish with a kind of idea of how one might go about, because of this imperative around housing, how one might go about um, informing student design projects with the kind of logics of deck access housing from the research in the book that you've done. Um, I think there's, it's it's a, you've talked about the density of it, you've talked about the kind of relationship to climate, health, socialization, perhaps we could have talked about that a little bit more. But I wondered whether you had any kind of guidance or advice about how you go about starting to think about designing deck access housing. Like, what do you do to begin? Because the go-to thing, I think, that you've expressed quite well is that you need to s speak to people. What does this look like and how does a project kind of evolve? Yes, um, I think it would be great to uh, set student design project that where different different groups of students worked in uh, different real or fictional sites in within different cultures and climate climate zones and um because i think it is applicable uh, it, it's probably not applicable in extreme areas that suffer extreme cold and mm -hmm. ice and snow frankly but outside of that um i think it'd be great to see a range of responses mm -hmm. because they should all buy our book for themselves but probably not get too hung up around uk a bit of our book is all about how to comply with UK regulation, which is fiendishly complex. Um, so they should probably not get too worried about that. After all, part of the purpose of being a student learning is not to have to worry about that and think big thoughts. Um, but the big thoughts need to be coming from the putting ourselves in the in the shoes of the of the the the, the occupier, the resident, thinking what. Well, I'm this person living in this place. Maybe you have a maybe you build a fictional uh, biography for your client. Um, uh, what? Um, yeah. So how how would how would I how would I cluster homes for those kinds of people in that kind of place in, in an effective way? Um, and clearly today, you want to be thinking very actively about climate change and uh, how you deal with um, thermal efficiency and overheating and all the rest of it, which, as we've said several times in the course of this conversation, is one of the things that deck access housing can do rather well. Yeah. I mean, I my, my, my sort of view on that would be um, to do what we've done in, in, in the book uh, and contextualise the criticism of deck access housing. So you've got to strip all that away and you've got to understand that, that Britain is still obsessed with, with, with the class system and, and that influences how we feel about architecture. So, you know, a house with a front door and a garden is seen as the, the ultimate. And, and this is just an ingrained class issue. Um, you know, if we go back in time, not too far, you know, the British architectural profession, you know, despite pioneering deck access housing more than any other country bar the Dutch, um, could be pretty dismissive and, and, and cruel about the way they talked about housing. With, with former Reba president Lancelot Key, himself a social housing pioneer in, Europe, in Liverpool in the 1930s, he commissioned 
a series of wonderful deck access housing schemes in at Liverpool. He called it housing for dirty people. You know, this this is just the disgraceful sort of attitude that we have in this country that we're okay about talking about people's homes like this. So my advice to students today is to understand that a lot of the stigmas, um, a lot of the criticisms around architecture are not really to do with design or to do with, with social issues, to do with, uh, you know, the class context that influences everything in this country. So it's, it's about trying to step back from that and just think about what are the actual design challenges here? How would you like to enter your home? I still think entering your home from the outside and crossing that threshold from outside to indoor is still the most satisfactory, enjoyable way to enter a home. I think that's better than an internal corridor, but that's a personal choice, I suppose. But as Andrew says, there's a whole load of issues around climate change um, and, as I've pointed out, around policy that, that pushes towards deck access housing as being a good solution. And what I would like to see in Britain over the next five years is that kind of excitement and passion and creativity coming back to the sector so that we do see buildings as exciting as Park Hill, for example, which has been refurbished recently by, by very good architects and is published in our book. So probably a good point to end on. Uh, well, one thing we've, we've not mentioned, Amber, just final thing, um, although I, I fear that tomorrow might be the final night, there's been a, a musical at the National Theatre playing for the last two months called Standing at the Sky's Edge, um, which I've seen. It was I enjoyed it. Um, I think it's been a sellout, uh, and it came from Sheffield. Um, and it is not just set in Park Hill. Park Hill is effectively the star of this big production. They've recreated a section of it wow. on stage. So there you have it, Deck Access starring in the National, National Theatre. Theatre. <laughs> What, it's what, back. What, it's what, back. What stronger uh, indicator of its revival? Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so very much for for, for coming and speaking about it and uh, your uh, about your wonderful book. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Ambrose. Thank you very much. Thanks to Rory and Andrew for the conversation and the folk at Routledge for the ebook. See the podcast description for links to it and to Pollard Thomas Edwards' site too, and a few of the many reviews of the book across the architectural press. Please do share this episode, of course. And thanks for listening. Cheers.